This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. It is one of the longest-running news programs in the history of television, premiering on November 7, 1954, from the CBS News Bureau here in Washington, D.C. Its very first guest, Wisconsin Senator Joe McCarthy. Over the years, 10 CBS News journalists have served as moderator. In just a moment, our conversation with Margaret Brennan. She has served as the moderator for the last two and a half years and is also the network's senior foreign affairs correspondent. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. And joining us from the CBS News Bureau here in Washington, D.C. is Margaret Brennan. What's the program mean to you? Hmm. Gosh, I love even just hearing the music at the start. It just gives me that uh, sense of you better pay attention. You better, you know, take this seriously. I mean, I love the um, magnitude of the program. I love the responsibility of moderating uh, an institution as Face the Nation is. And I take that even job title of moderator very seriously, not anchor. Um, You are moderating a conversation. And I think in this environment, um, it is more important than ever to try to take a deep breath, give perspective, give context. And I feel a great responsibility around that. And I also feel a great privilege um, and honor to be in that role. And in today's 24-7 cable news, digital environment, how do you carve out that role for Sunday morning? (laughs) And how has it changed over the last 15 to 20 years? Gosh, no, it's a great question. Um, It's, you know, the, the thing we lack the most sometimes is context and perspective. And particularly when you're in... Um, a frenetic news cycle, all of us that we are living through as a country together, it is hard sometimes to get that, hold on, time out, take a step back. Where where are we actually going with this? And that's something that we um, talk about each week. How do we do that? And I think, you know, there are so many distinguished moderators who I looked up to over the course of my career um, in the chair on Face the Nation. And I often ask myself, and I talk to Bob Schieffer, and I talk to John Dickerson, and I say to them, you know, how did you do this, or how did you navigate this, or how did you, when you sat down with the president this time, what was that like, or when you were in a debate, how did you prepare? And some of those things are common common threads in terms of what it takes to be able to sit in the chair and have a live interview, sometimes a very contentious live interview, and move through uh, the lines of questions that you have to get to, those that you feel responsibility to get to, though that you can call audibles and discard in the moment. But I do think there is something unique in terms of where we are as a country uh, because of the availability of information, good or bad disinformation, misinformation out there. It has heightened the stakes. I think the social media environment has heightened the amount of scrutiny that anyone who sits in this chair is under because you get these instant hot takes on whatever that moment is. And I think also for us, we're in a country that's being torn apart by multiple crises, multi-layered crises. And so it's... um, it's, it's added a layer of difficulty, I believe, to the program. Um, and I, I feel that it's made it even more important. Um, and it's recently in the middle of this COVID crisis made us feel this responsibility of public service even more to say, let's try to pull some of the politics out of it 
and focus on the policy and where we're going as a country. Your first program back in February of 2018, you mentioned Bob Schieffer. He served as the longest serving moderator for 24 years on Face the Nation. And from the C-SPAN video library, this is a conversation that he had with David Brinkley at the time, who was the host of ABC's This Week, July 20th, 1994. Let's listen. We, we start early in the week, and, and, and the way we go at it is, is we start talking about, well, what, what kind of a broadcast would we possibly do? And, 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 and our people will start on Monday and Tuesday calling people and say, if we did a show on Haiti, would Senator McCain be in town? Would he be available? A lot of times you find out early on, look, he's, you know, he's going away for um, uh, his daughters in the Girl Scouts, and he can't do anything on Sunday. He's going to take the day off. So you sort of eliminate that way. But we sort of start, and I'm sure David does the same, same thing, uh, by midweek we sort of have in mind two or three possible broadcasts. And we begin again seeing who would be available if we decided to do that. Generally, uh, it's Friday before we know whether the, the Brinkley show has run under us and gotten a guess that we had hoped to get or well, whether, we you or whether we, <laughs> you know, and, and it goes back and forth like that. So it's, it's very flexible. And, and uh, just as it is at David's uh, shop, I'm sure it sometimes is Saturday night before we know for sure what that broadcast is going to be about. And that from Bob <laughs> Schieffer back in 1994. You're laughing because I assume things don't change today. No, a lot of what he described is the exercise we go through every single week of coming up with a few hypothetical programs and options um, and sort of fitting those puzzle pieces together. Mary Hager, the executive producer today, was also Bob Schieffer's executive producer and worked with John Dickerson as well. So there are some common elements to the thinking and the re-strategizing every single day between, um, you know, each Sunday. The thing I would say that perhaps is different is just the velocity of the news cycle right now you could generally i i believe know a week out sort of what the major policy initiatives would be what you generally probably need to be reading up on and staying smart on and read in on and these days you have an indication but you also don't know what you don't know and you could have five different news cycles between you know Sunday and the following I mean just look at the past week where it was Monday that President Trump um, gave the Rose Garden speech and you had the Lafayette Square incident and you had this sort of changing news cycle over the course of the week where you had divides between the defense secretary and the joint chiefs of staff and then the attorney general and then by the following Sunday I'm on television interviewing the attorney general about what has just transformed in the course of five days versus sort of uh, encapsulating um, perhaps what the broader debate should be about criminal justice reform or policing. We're talking about what exactly is being done moment by moment by the administration to sort of pull apart a changing story between Monday and Sunday. Um, And that's an interesting thing. I think that's perhaps a little bit more specific to the Trump administration is the, the subplots within the subplots of a news story. There's not just one administration version of a story. There's kind of arms and tentacles to each uh, story that, we pull on. Um, and sometimes you don't even know what to anticipate. None of us on on, on the prior Sunday would have anticipated uh, Monday and the Lafayette Square incident being as explosive as it was. And of course, your interview with Attorney General Barr made a lot of news, but give us the backstory. How did that come about? Well, um, I, 
had been hoping to speak to the attorney general for well over a year. Um, and we'd been trying and requesting and, uh, that had been pending. I had lunch with him, um, uh, or, or went in to see him, um, uh, over a year ago to, to, to make our pitch as I know a number of journalists have. Um, and then it didn't, evolve uh from there i wasn't even sure if we were still up for consideration and we went back and continued to knock on the door and say remember us we still want to talk to you um and we went back and knocked on the door again and said remember me i I still want to talk to you and this might be a moment in which you uh want to come out and talk about where the country is i mean all of a sudden the attorney general is at the center of this tremendous storm because of the broader debate about uh, racism and policing and whether the Justice Department was adequately backstopping local uh, governments in sort of monitoring their own police um, and, and precincts, but then also what happened with the clearing of Lafayette Square on Monday and Attorney General Barr's role in overseeing the federal agents who were executing some of this policy that it was changing storyline wise, whether he he knew the ins and outs of it or not. And so we wanted to sit down and talk to him about exactly what the message was supposed to be to law enforcement around the country. What were they supposed to take away from this moment in time? And uh, we really weren't sure it was going to happen until Friday morning when the Justice Department called and said, yes, well, let's do this. So it was... um, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where you got to be ready to, to suit up and run in the game, not knowing if it's going to happen or not. So it's kind of a constant doing your homework and trying to stay up to the moment as moderator. That's one of the things I didn't appreciate till I was in this role. One of the other challenges I know for the Sunday programs, and we've seen this not only with the Trump administration, but with previous uh, White House administrations, is they will put out a single administration official, whether it's a cabinet secretary or somebody close to the president. But he or she will then make appearances on three or four other Sunday morning programs. So what is your thinking when they offer that individual? And if you accept that person, how do you carve out a different line of questioning? I think our conversations on Face the Nation are different, period. I think we do, and and I can pull that apart for you, particularly on the national security front, for example. I covered that world and continue to cover it for many years. Uh, I covered Wall Street and the economy for over a decade. I think I bring some of those um, perspectives into the conversations in a a different way. Um, And I think our show also has really tried to make Face the Nation has tried to make um, a, a real virtue, in particular during the crisis, of being in that public service role, of trying to get information to people that is vital um, and not just the kind of political opinion you can get just about anywhere these days, even when you're not looking for it. Everyone's got an opinion, but very few people have hard facts right now. And I think there's a real hunger for that. And that's the approach we bring in every Sunday. And that's certainly what I have in my mind when I'm sitting in the chair trying to have an interview and and a conversation is just sort of, this isn't about me pounding my chest. I'm the moderator. I need to get the information from you as the uh, guest on the program because the people at home need to know it. If it's about COVID, it's literally life and death. If it's about the economy, it's about feeding their families and keeping their jobs. If it's about the election, you know, it, it's literally about the, the future of our democracy and the mechanics of it. And how is that going to work? These are the kind of um, 
conversations, I think sometimes uh, the details get lost in the emotion of the moment these days. And we try to get that detail out to, to better inform the public. Margaret Brennan, you covered the Trump White House before moving over to this current position. How has that helped you navigate the request that you might put in to get senior administration officials or the president on your program? Um, I don't know. Uh, on the on the booking front, I mean, we have a team of folk, folks who, who work on that. We have an executive producer who uh, continues to work very directly uh, in that process as well. I think for me... Um, it brings a certain perspective and perhaps, you know, some of the folks at the White House know me very directly because they used to see me in the front row asking those questions from day one when I was sitting in that briefing room. Um, and it, it brings a little bit of understanding on my part as to how decisions are made and executed. I think some of it is interesting. You know, I, I've, I've known uh, some of the administration officials because of my time covering the administration, but also um, when Gary Cohn was in the administration, Larry Kudlow, who is in the current administration, I knew them from my prior lives as well, uh, from when I was a business journalist. And um, so I do think that brings a different sort of understanding um, to to the conversations. But um, I don't know on the booking. I've only gotten the opportunity to sit with the president for, for a lengthy interview, which we were, um, you know, pleased to get uh, for the Super Bowl broadcast we had when CBS was the network covering the uh, Super Bowl and had the broadcast rights. We sat down with the president for about 45 minutes and um, it was extended in depth. I thought uh, a wonderful exercise at getting to ask follow-ups that you don't get to ask on Twitter and you don't get to do in a press conference when you're shouting after a president hoping that he chooses to respond. Um, And I hope we get the opportunity to do that again. Uh, It is rare that the president sits for a Sunday show interview. But I can say this because we've had interviews with President Trump as well and he can be a hard interview because he can go in eight different directions with one question. Uh, You're 100% right. It is... Um, you as the interviewer have to kind of keep your eye on the ball throughout it on, okay, I can follow you down the hard right turn you just took there or the hard left turn you just took there, or I can stay on the original question that I was seeking the answer to in the first place. And, um, you know, you, you, uh, that's the, the great sort of weight on your shoulders is saying, can I get, can I let that one pass? Do I have to follow him there? Um, or is the pursuit of the original line of questioning more important than what was just thrown my way? Because sometimes what's being thrown your way is a diversion um, from the topic itself. You know, the president is not the first person to figure that one out (laughs) um, as a tactic, but he deploys it in a very different way. And you're right, because when you're going to sit down for an interview, you have to be prepared and know what you want to get done in the course of that conversation um, and have sort of a checklist mentally of what's the must do uh, and be able to call audibles as you go. You basically need to know your topic in and out before you sit down. 
As you know, it's been 12 years since the death of Tim Russert, and people still look at the way he approached NBC's Meet the Press. Some called it the Russert primary for those mm-hmm. candidates who would appear on the program before they would get the nomination. In an interview with C-SPAN's Brian Lamb for Book Notes, he made reference to Lawrence Spivak, who helped launch Meet the Press back in the 1950s. Here's that exchange. He was remarkable. I went to him... Uh, as I mentioned, the first call I made when I became moderator, he invited me to lunch. And I said, what's the mission of Meet the Press? What do you do each and every Sunday? He said, that's simple. You learn everything you can about your guest and his or her positions and take the other side. And if you do that each and every Sunday, you'll demonstrate the requisite objectivity and balance and difference of guest, and no one will ever complain, and you'll have a long and illustrious career. He said, you know, because when you engage people in that kind of intellectual exercise, you create a little tension and you'll make a little bit of news. Wonderful advice. Margaret Brennan, your thoughts? I think that is wonderful advice. Um, I would amend it to say, learn everything you can about the topic, Um, not just the guest, because in the news environment we are in, it is very rare that it's one issue that you're sitting down with a guest to talk about. Occasionally it is, uh, certainly in, in the throes of the, the worst um, of COVID in New York City in particular, it was very much focused on sort of moment by moment in that issue. But quite often, uh, sort of where we are this week, um, you have to be able to know everything about the issue at hand and not just the person. It's not just... Um, calling them out on a contradiction or a change in, in policy or position. It's it's often sort of trying to push it forward to say, okay, take me beyond what, what you just said 20 times in the past cable news cycle or on Twitter. Take me to the next step. And that's often how I think of it. Where do we go from here? Okay. Um, and I would also say there is sort of a um, – wonderful thing to watch that that Tim Russert did that Bob Schieffer did that had this sort of calm command of the issues and to say you're here to have a conversation with me not a debate but I'm here to learn something and I'm going to call you out on what you've said that's just a talking point that you can't back up I think that is evergreen Um, I think the moment we are in has added a level of complexity to this Um, and also Sometimes you don't even know who the guests are until Sunday, you know, morning or Saturday. I'm thinking in what just happened in the past few weeks with the with the violence and the riots that we saw. We had to reshuffle guests Saturday night going into Sunday. And in that, it was know the issue, know the, the main questions you need to get to rather than the prosecution of the guests themselves. And I'm curious, how do you get beyond when you're getting the the normal talking points and you know what they are or you're not getting a straight answer how do you approach that oh god i mean you know as a as a correspondent um that's the most frustrating thing the thing that is a great gift of having the ability to sit for an extended interview which is often what we do um on the program a, a longer uh interview than you would normally get on another broadcast you can have the the follow-ups um, and be able to try to get people to go beyond the talking point. Um, I find 
that's why researching the issue itself can be the most useful because you can find the data point that disproves the talking point. You can uh, sort of get someone to think on their feet a little bit more. And I think that's what's authentic is when you're getting someone to sort of think out loud, talk to you as as an American, um, as someone invested in the democracy that we are all discussing about how do you get from here to there and tell me what the difficulty is in this. If someone just gives you the clear, clean talking point in a way that makes it seem simple, it's usually not very true because I think as all of us know, there's a lot more gray and a lot more complexity to things um, than people like to advertise. And I think getting someone to talk through that is often the most illuminating. Do you, you learn have, something? Do you have a, a dream guest, one big get that you want for Face the Nation? Oh my gosh, I have pages and pages <laughs> of guests. Um, the people that I would love to talk to, I would love to talk to Xi Jinping of China. Um, I would love to have another um, extended interview with uh, the presumed Democratic nominee, Joe Biden. I would love to have Donald Trump, the president, back on the program. Um, There are so many, so many people I would love to have back on um, or be able to do deep dives with. You mentioned Mary Hager. She has been the producer, the executive producer of the program for how many years? I think... That's at least 10. Well, I mentioned that because this is how John Dickerson signed off, not talking about his role as the moderator of Face the Nation, but as you mentioned earlier, the people behind the scenes. I have had the privilege for the last two and a half years of meeting you here for an hour each Sunday. What you don't see are the other 167 hours in the week when all the people you don't see are working to make our hour together go smoothly. It starts almost the minute we go off the air when executive producer Mary Hager is already thinking about who we should book for the next show. Arrayed all around me right now are the people who get up long before the sun and work long after it has gone down, who chase down the host's every last query, save him from getting a fact wrong, coax the teleprompter, replace a guest who has gotten sick at the last minute, Frame the shot. Keep the batteries fresh in the microphone packs. Poke all these lights over my head. Search for the right interview location. Wrangle time, space, and security guards at those locations when we take the show on the road. Chase reluctant public officials. Keep my forehead from looking shiny. (laughs) And drain pot after pot of coffee in the edit room. They give up their weekends and they give up planning. Because when you work in the news, birthdays, anniversaries, and commitments to your kids and your parents get overturned. They do all of this because they are committed. They want to tell you what's going on as best as we can figure it and believe that we can give you some control over your world by helping you understand it. And that's from John Dickerson, his final broadcast on Meet the Press. And Margaret Brennan, I, I suspect you can relate to that. Oh, he put it so beautifully. Um, Dickerson is such a fabulous writer. I, a hundred percent agree with him. And I would, I would add, I'm sort of tearing up as I listen to that play because the level of complication that our team has had to deal with, 
during the pandemic where we have people who are working at home using technology they've never used before to try to edit together pieces they've never had to do on their kitchen table, but instead of done with state-of-the-art equipment in a professional edit bay. The level of obstacle courses that they have been confronted with in the past three months is incredible. And the, I am proud that people at home may not know that, that the show is that beautifully put on put on on Sundays that, you know, we may see the seams and the, and the, uh, not so perfect audio because someone's doing an interview via zoom instead of with a professional cameraman. But the fact that all of that is happening, the fact that people came in and continue to come in and put on their mask and stand on that set six feet away from me, that made me tear up the first time I saw that. And I wonder if this pandemic is going to change the way our industry moves ahead. So many changes in terms of technology. And as you pointed out, so many working from home and yet doing so seamlessly. Absolutely. And the team has had a few um, sort of dry runs in terms of having curveballs. We've had multiple new studios in the past just year and a half. But this was another level of complication um, of just figuring out how to do things and what the protocols can be for people to safely work. And um, it is, we, we don't know exactly how permanent some of these changes are, but it feels like they're not leaving us anytime soon. Um, and uh, we had Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google on the program recently, who said, we've gone through 10 years of change in two months. And I think that's exactly right for this particular industry in television. I mean, I'm talking to you right now in a, in a studio in my home that didn't exist uh, a few months ago. Um, and we're talking about just how to, when I interviewed the attorney general last week, we, we couldn't have a guest sit on a set across from me. That's almost unthinkable in a, in a program where it's about conversation and having a face-to-face uh, conversation. We had to go outside the building and go to the justice department to get that done because of the COVID restrictions um, for safety. And that's, I hope that doesn't stay with us. I hope that we will soon be able to have guests sit across from me, locking eyes, being able to interrupt each other, interject, um, being able to read each other's body language, hear our tone a little bit more. That part, I hope, comes back. I hope we're not always at a distance. But to be able to see some of the innovation, I think that is going to stick with us. And I hope viewers at home get used to seeing people broadcasting from their computers um, because I think that part is not going away. And with so many at home because of this pandemic, have the demographics changed? Has the audience increased over the last couple of months? Are people even more eager to get straightforward news and information? I The viewership has been really um, incredible. I mean, we have seen people uh, turn to us in a way they haven't in decades. Uh, in terms of the absolute numbers of, of people seeking out information, doing so, I think that's been an across-the-board sort of story for many programs and many networks, but for our program in particular, that uh, our boat has risen a bit more. Um, in fact, we've been doing very well uh, with viewership and getting, even just anecdotally, feedback from people 
saying, you know, I have this question or I want to, I want to pursue this specific thing about can I do this, can I do, not do this safely with, for example, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner who's been a consistent voice for us on the medical front, um, or people wanting to know the ins and outs of uh, what this next congressional bill is going to look like if they're going to get unemployment extensions. We're talking about life and death issues for people. It doesn't get more personal um, in that version of politics and policy. And I think that people know that. And I hope, as, a, as an idealist at heart, um, that it has proven the importance of journalism in the functioning of our institutions and our democracy. People who do what we do may not be very popular these days. We rate right up there with Congress in terms of approval. But I think people have realized they need fact and they need information. And I hope that that's what we are proudly able to do on Sundays. It's certainly how I know our team thinks of it. And um, that has helped motivate us throughout this crisis. As you know, John Dickerson is also a UVA graduate. Is that a prerequisite to serve as the moderator of Face the Nation? <laughs> and, and Mary Hager, the executive producer, is a Wahoo as well. Uh, it's not a requirement, but it is certainly a, a, a plus, as is, um, you know, it, it was Thomas Jefferson who, who, who talked about, uh, you know, the importance of the press in terms of um, information being a currency in our democracy. And uh, while not always liking journalists himself, he knew they were necessary for us to all continue to function. So as a graduate of Mr. Jefferson's University, I'd like to think there's a common thread through all of us there. What is the Margaret Brennan story? I know you were born in Connecticut. Uh, tell us briefly about your parents and you're now soon to be two-year-old. <laughs> um, my son, Eamon, is, uh, as you said, 21 months old, almost two years old. He's talking and walking and it is incredible. And that is one of the blessings of um, being at home more these days, uh, because, um, you know, I, I, I wasn't home, uh, when he was first born for very long. And, uh, this has been a blessing to be able to see him. Um, I was born in Connecticut. You're right. Stanford, Connecticut, grew up in Danbury, Connecticut. Uh, my dad worked on wall street, uh, in finance and my mom is trained as an artist and was, would often teach and often, also paint and uh, do exhibitions herself as well. And um, when I went off to university, I had graduated from um, Catholic all-girls school in Greenwich, Connecticut called Convent of the Sacred Heart. Very small, 26 girls in my graduating class, and then went to UVA down south, um, a Connecticut Yankee down there, just absolutely... um, nervous about this massive change and absolutely the best place for me to have gone uh, to school. I got to study foreign affairs, Middle East studies, minored in Arabic, studied abroad in Jordan um, as part of that education. I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do with that degree. I thought I'd possibly be a diplomat myself. And it was after studying abroad that I realized how much I liked that first person experience and how important it was in shaping and reporting and sharing information that things you study in books are very different when you experience them yourselves, yourself. And uh, I went on an internship down at CNN in Atlanta for a summer. My aunt and uncle down there were kind enough to let me uh, stay with them for an unpaid internship. And that changed the course of my career. I said, this is what I want to do. And, um, Started out at CNBC. Um, I moved to Manhattan, worked in financial news there, um, covered the financial crisis as a 
correspondent. Uh, after working my way into that role, I had started out as just an entry-level position behind the camera um, as a producer and researcher. And then by, it was 2009, I left. I had a television show on Bloomberg Television for three years covering various debt crises and the Arab Spring. And then I decided, you know what? I need to pursue the thing that makes me most passionate, and that is why societies and politics change and social movements and dive into all the things I was passionate about in the first place and took a role at CBS covering the State Department. And then it just took off from there um, and ended up at the White House at the end of the Obama administration, beginning of the Trump administration. So I've covered national security, foreign affairs, uh, Wall Street, and um, U.S. politics. And I feel like all of those things have all um, been interwoven in the current news cycle. So I didn't know it then, but I feel like it's been a good education. Also, reporting live on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in the middle of chaos is a good education (laughs) for this. And as you know, C-SPAN Radio carries Face the Nation every Sunday. So let me conclude with this question. At the end of each hour on a Sunday morning, what do you want the audience to take away? At the end of the hour, you said? Yes. I want the audience to have learned something. I want the audience to have felt like they understand an issue that affects them in a a more in-depth way than when they began. And I'd like for them to walk away chewing on that a little bit so that they've ended the week knowing the most important things that affected them and they're starting the one... Uh, that we are on the cusp of at the end of that Sunday program with information armed to inform where we're headed next. Margaret Brennan is Senior Foreign Affairs Correspondent for CBS News and for the purposes of this conversation, the moderator of Face the Nation every Sunday morning. We thank you for being with us. Oh, this was great to talk to you. Thank you for making time. And a reminder, The Weekly is available on the free C-SPAN radio app. You can also find us on the web at cspan.org slash podcast. And after you listen, be sure to rate and review us. We look forward to reading your comments. And on Twitter, we're at C-SPAN radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Thank you for listening. <laughs>